It's like I'm in a building that has nobody in it, but I know it is filled with the people of God, the presence of the Lord, the angelic host, the armies of the Lord. They are all here, and it is so good to be in the presence of God. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you that is tuned in. We're so thankful for our new viewers out on the West Coast in California. We salute you and we thank God for you, uh, praying for you, that God continue to minister to you through this work. And by the grace of God, maybe one day soon we'll be able to come out that way and visit with you. But until then, we will continue to work with you in the Word. Feel free to reach out to me. We would definitely respond. You can reach us on uh, email. You can call me on my phone. Everything's on the uh, website uh, for you to uh, reach out. And we're just thankful to the Lord for the opportunity that God has given us to share His Word of Truth also want to thank those that have responded to our call for uh, assistance that these ministries would be able to continue to go forth in the multiple platforms that we use. just want to say thank you. Thank you very much for your donations and your gifts, for uh, reaching out into this ministry and sowing. And I believe that you are sowing into fertile earth, into fertile ground and that God is going to bless you as a result of it. So we just want to say thank you. We don't take it for granted. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, all, all the finances that come in go to the uh, work, to establishing, continuing to establish this work, and we're so thankful to God for each and every one of you. We want to continue talking uh, this week about our identity. Our identity is so vitally important to our success in daily living. Understanding who we are is so vitally important. And we've been kind of talking about this over the last few months, uh, been trying to get you to a place of understanding uh, of who you are in Christ versus who you were in the world, uh, who you were in your carnal uh, state of being. One of the greatest tricks of the enemy it doesn't matter whether it's our spiritual enemy, the devil, or the kingdom of darkness, or people here in the earth in the natural sense. Um, one thing that has been successful in conquering any people is stripping them of their identity. And there are a variety of different means and, and methods in which to do that so that you can dominate or enslave any group of people. To do that, you have to first strip them of their identity, rewrite their history. And this will afford you an upper hand in controlling um, and having power over them. The enemy, our spiritual enemy, uses this tactic, and I believe that this is why the Bible declares that we are not ignorant of his devices. It also declares that every weapon that's formed against us won't prosper. The way a weapon does not prosper is that we have understanding of the weapon. 
we can recognize that it is a weapon and then respond or build defenses against the weapon. Now, our defense is always Christ. But the Bible tells us that my people perish for a lack of knowledge, simply because we don't know some things. We don't understand that we, in truth, are the ones that have the upper hand. So God has been really pushing me and and dealing with me to deal with his people directly connected to our identity so that we as a people can enjoy the life that he intended for us to enjoy while we are yet living here in the earth. Heaven will take care of itself. God didn't call us to suffer and to struggle in this life in the sense of, um, you know, understanding who we are, beating ourselves up for things that we've done, fighting to justify ourselves before God. These are the things that God never intended for us to do. He sent his son to do those things. And understanding our true and real connection to Christ, living in Christ and Christ living in us, helps us to better live this daily, natural reality. So I want to continue where I left off last week. Turn with me in the Word of God, and we're talking about how we can live our true identity out loud. We can live it out loud. We don't have to be afraid of it. We can declare it because we understand it. We can walk in it because it's real. We can access everything that it is uh, open doors to us to access. It's exciting when you begin to think about who you are truly in Christ. In fact, it's overwhelming. Turn with me in the Bible to the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter and the 13th verse, and this is where I left off last week, Galatians 5 and 13, and it reads like this. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. And I want you to underline that word liberty. There's something very important because many of us think we're living a life of liberty when in actuality we're living a life of bondage. But we've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but love serve one another, but by love serve one another. And I want to talk about uh, today this idea of liberty and license, law versus flesh. I want to break this down uh, just a little bit for you, our liberty from sin versus our license to sin. This has been a doctrinal debate, and I want to talk about this just a little bit further to give us a a more complete understanding, a more complete view of what has taken place at the transition of rulership of our life from our carnal state to our redeemed state. It's well established in God's Word, and I've been trying to teach you that we live 
neither by the law nor by some work or act of goodness of our own. We can never become perfect in the flesh no matter how much good we do. It doesn't matter how much good that you think that you've been able to accomplish, how many people you've helped, how many um, you know, blessings you've given to, to people. It doesn't matter whatever it is that you think that you've done that you associate to being good, uh, building up, as they say, brownie points for yourself. Our perfection is connected solely to the working or the works of Christ in us. You see, we've been made perfect because he is perfect, not because we have perfected ourselves. Crazy thing is, is if you were to ever find a quote-unquote perfectionist and you were to ask a perfectionist if they've ever attained perfection, in most cases they will tell you that they have not and that they're always striving to do it better or to be it better. They just simply cannot get to that level of perfection that they're seeking after. You'll find this a lot with uh, athletes. They always are striving to do it better, to be better. And, and most, uh, many of the athletes will describe themselves, especially the superstars, they will describe themselves as uh, perfectionists and what drives their uh, motivation is to be the best at what they're doing and in the process of doing that they're constantly honing their skill, working out to get stronger and stronger, researching things to have a greater understanding. They're trying to strive towards this level of perfection, this bar of perfection that they have set that they cannot ever seem to attain. There's a bar of perfection that's already been set that we, outside of Christ, will never be able to attain. I stopped trying to attain perfection that was unattainable. The only way it's unattainable by the things that I do. The only way that you can attain this mark or this level of perfection is through Jesus. There is no other way. And the way that I do this through Christ is by believing in and accepting for myself his perfection. A better understanding of perfection through Christ is being restored to our original state of perfection in him from creation when he breathed into our nostrils the breath of his own life, and his life is perfection. You see, when man was created, the body was dead in creation. It was corrupted until the perfection of God was imputed by his very own breath being alive in us, causing life to come into a dead thing. 
Then we know there was the fall of man through the acts of Adam and Eve and sin returns to the body or in essence returns the body to its imperfect state, the state of dying or the state of death and the blood of Jesus which was shed for us at Calvary is the redeeming or the returning of his perfect life in us not in the time to come, but in the moment of your belief. In the moment that you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, you have become perfected again because your life is now swallowed up in him. We can't keep enough laws. We, we can't do enough work to make ourselves like God. We're, we, we're just... Uh, you know, I incapable of doing this. We, we will fall too far short every single time in every attempt. If we're ever going to be acceptable to God, it has to be because God loves us enough to provide for us that ideal righteousness to reconnect us to Him. To provide someone that can bear the punishment for our having violated our perfection. Now a true believer knows that God has loved him and has accepted this love by him to rejoin himself or herself back to God. They understand that God loves the world so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world to do both things that were needed to be, do to be done, which was the redeeming to a state of righteousness and the dealing with the justice or the judgment of God that was necessary for sin. We understand that Jesus came into this world and he lived a life that was sinless and in so doing, he has secured for us an ideal righteousness. So then we are made righteous or we are caused to live a sinless or be seen by God as connected to a sinless life because of what Jesus did in our faith or our belief in that thing. Then we understand that Jesus died. He died which bore the judgment of the violation of of our sin against the righteousness or the perfection of God. And when you believe these things about Christ, that Christ is your Savior, God takes your belief and he counts it as being the same as Christ. And because you are now like Christ, you become acceptable to God you're not acceptable to God because of your works, nor do you get more acceptable by keeping some measure of law or rule or ritual. You're acceptable to God because Christ has set you free from having to struggle to be good enough to be saved and always wondering in yourself if you've done enough to be saved. Man no longer has to work and keep laws to be saved. 
Your salvation is based upon the work and the sinless life of Christ. Your salvation is based upon your belief and acceptance of what Jesus has done, not what you have done. It's important that we understand that. You see, living by the law has always led to hopelessness. It leaves us in a state of helplessness. Man is saved by the grace of God in giving his son for the world. And when you believe this, Jesus becomes your savior. When you accept that Jesus died for you, here is where knowledge becomes susceptible to corruption. You see, this is where the danger of license enters in. A question needs to be asked, if Christ set us free from the law, does this mean then that a person can believe in Christ, yet go out and live like they want to live, doing whatever it is that they want to do, their own thing? Can they use their liberty as an occasion to go out to satisfy the deeds or the needs of the flesh with the understanding that God will forgive them? Can a person continue to seek the things of the world and give way to the desires and the lusts of their flesh? Can they believe in Christ and yet still live in worldliness? The answer should be an emphatic no, a thousand times no. This is what scripture declares. A person who thinks and declares such an idea fails to understand belief, true belief. You see, in the Bible, belief does not mean intellectual belief or mind, head belief, to just believe something in the mind. Belief means a committed belief to believe something with one's life or a belief of the heart. It is the transition of head knowledge to heart knowledge. To believe Christ is to commit one's life to Christ, to turn their life over to Christ, to live as the example of Christ now in the earth. Now the word commit pitch you from the Greek it's the very same word that's connected to believe. If you look in the Bible, in the book of John, the second chapter in the 23rd verse, you'll see it reads, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So this gives us a, 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 a wonderful picture of saving faith, of what genuine faith is, of the kind of faith that really saves us. You see, saving faith is not head knowledge. It's not just a mental conviction or an intellectual assent into a level of understanding. It does not believe the facts connected to Jesus, 
being the savior of the world. It does not just believe the historical truth, which indicates that Jesus lived upon the earth as the savior, just as uh, President Barack Obama lived on the earth as the first black president of America. It does not just believe the words and, and the claims of Jesus in the same way that a person would believe the words and the promises of any of our presidents. You see, saving faith is believing in Jesus, believing who and what he is and believing that he is the Savior and the Lord of life. It is the very act of giving and turning one's life over to Jesus. It is the very embodiment of a man casting himself upon Jesus as Savior and Lord. Saving faith is a surrender. It's coming to Jesus without terms. The surrender of your total being, your life, your, your motivation, your heart, your intellect, giving it all to Christ. It is the capitulation of all that you are and all that you have over to Christ. It, is, it, it gives Jesus everything that identifies you. And if it is everything that identifies you, then it includes all of your affairs. You see, you trust Jesus to take care of your past sins, your present welfare, and your future destiny. You entrust your whole life, your whole being, your possessions. You trust and give them over into the hands of Christ. You lay yourself upon Jesus, keeping and confiding in him about your daily necessities and acknowledging him in all the ways of your life. You follow Jesus in every way and in every detail of life, seeking his instructions and living your wealth leaving your welfare up to him alone it is simply the submission of your whole being everything that you are to Christ it is coming to Christ with your hands up which is a sign of complete submission not my way Lord but your way, not my will, but your will. Romans 10, 16 and 17 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So then there are three steps involved in your faith. Steps that are clearly seen in this passage. There is first the step of seeing, John 2 and 23, or hearing, Romans 10 and 16. A man must be willing to listen to the message of Christ, which is the revelation of truth. Something that you so often hear today is the term or the phrase, your truth. We've, we've come to a place in our society where now we have accepted that many people's points of view are true or truth. 
while it may not be truth to you, we've simply stopped negating someone's opinion and we've determined that what they have declared simply is truth and maybe not to the populace, but to them. So it's now their truth. We've taken lies and applied lies to truth and thereby turning truth into lies. Matthew 13 and 16 says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Yet we deny the very things that we see and the very things that we hear. First Thessalonians 2 and 13 for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word of God cannot work in you if you do not accept it and believe it. If when you tune in, you tune in expecting to hear from Bishop Roy Jesse Lyseth and not expecting to hear from God, you are limiting the effect of the word. But if you tune in expecting to hear from God through me, Understanding that what I am saying and what I'm declaring and what I'm quoting from Scripture is the truth, not my truth, but God's truth. And He is truth. You have to receive it into yourself. Then there's the step of mental assent you have to agree that what you've heard is true that the facts of the case are thus and so but even this is not enough mere agreement does not lead to action many people know things that are true but knowing these things has not changed their behavior to match their knowledge. For an example, a man knows that eating too much can harm his body. And he may continue to eat too much even while possessing the knowledge that what he's doing is bringing harm to his body. He agrees to the truth and knows the truth, but then does nothing about the truth. A person may believe and know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and yet do nothing about the knowledge of who he is, never making the decision to follow him. Now, this person still does not have faith, not the kind of faith that the Bible talks about. You see, James 1 and 18 says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. James 4 and 8, 
Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Luke 16 and 12. And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? 1 Corinthians 10 and 21, ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. And Hosea 10 and 2 kind of puts an emphasis on this. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. You have to go beyond accepting and allow the accepting to produce action. Then there's the step of surrender. When the New Testament speaks of faith, it speaks of surrender, a personal surrender to that which is true. You see, you hear the truth and you agree with the truth and it causes you to do something about the truth. You surrender and you yield your life to that which is true. The truth becomes part of your very being. A part of your being causes it to be a part of your life. And because it is a part of your life, it takes care of your behavior. Now just think about it for a moment and it will become perfectly clear if you're not willing to surrender to your life to Christ, then you do not believe in Christ. There is a vast difference between committing your life and belief to Jesus and surrendering your life and belief to Jesus. You see, commitment is something that we do on our terms, while surrender is what we do on the terms of another. If you really believed, you would be beyond all question. You would give all that you are and all that you have to the Son of God. I know this sounds to the ears as hard because it requires something of us. Our generation and those coming up uh, after us have lost the desire to earn and have bought into the idea that we are entitled to what we have. Our entitlement is born out of our surrender to Christ, not out of our birth into this world. We are entitled because of our connection to Christ, not our connection to our carnality. And then there's the restraint of love. A person who thinks that belief in Christ frees him or gives him license to sin does not understand truly what love is. You see, this is the real focus of this passage. A true believer is freed from having to secure God's approval by law, but love is the one restraint that is placed upon him. You see, the believer needs no restraint from sin because they're motivated by love. All my actions are motivated by love Hence, I'm not focused or concerned about sinning or trying not to sin. I don't spend my days trying not to do wrong. I spend my days focused on simply exemplifying the love of God. And there are at least two reasons why this will cause you to live successfully. 
First, God has loved you. The person who truly sees the love of God is drawn to love God back and to love all of God's creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge. And if one died for all, then we then were all dead. And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You see, love embraces all of the commandments of God. Jesus himself said, the fact is clearly seen in the point of this passage. Love takes care of it all. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 through 40. Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So many of us struggle with exemplifying this in our life because we simply don't understand what love is. And when we lack the understanding of love, it robs us of the uh, full understanding of our identity. And then we become focused on trying not to do things when we live in liberty because of our identity to who he is and what he has done for us. I'm no longer living motivated by trying not to do wrong. I'm living motivated by exemplifying the love of God. So what is love then? I don't know if I have the time to get into this like I want, but let me just throw this little tidbit out there for you. Love is serving one another. A believer enjoys liberty in Christ. He's set free from all the laws and the restraints and works. He's under nothing, absolutely nothing but Christ. He lives in Christ, moves in Christ, has his being in Christ. The love of Christ is his law and restraint. Why? Because Christ loves the believer. Served and gave himself for the believer. And the believer not only understands and knows this, but has accepted this. And because of the acceptance and surrender to this truth, the believer loves Christ with all of their heart and life. So then the believer's desire is to please Christ and do everything that they can to serve Christ. And this is just the point. How can the believer serve Christ? By doing exactly what Christ did, loving and serving others. Jesus declared, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. Service is the exemplifying, it is the outward motive or motion of love. By love, serve one another. A person who loves does not act like a lord over people. They serve and help people. They show kindness and gentleness. They express concern and care. They demonstrate sympathy and empathy. When you truly love, you can 
uh, identify with people, get down where people are, and even below where some of them are, and minister to them. Love serves. It always reaches out to do whatever it can for the other person. It never withdraws from people, feeling that he or she does not deserve their effort or help, is not worthy of their effort or help, is less than them, is too derelict, too immoral, too uneducated, too unrecognized, or or simply just below them. Matthew 20 and 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the, uh, this is love magnified. John 13, 4 through 5, and then verse uh, 14, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Down to 14, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. What is he talking about? He's talking about if I have come and demonstrated service the exemplification of that very identity is magnified in the life of those who serve. I'll close with this on love. Love is not offending. Love is caring. Caring as much as one can. Now, if a person cared for everyone else as much as they care for themselves, they would need no law. There would be no reason to have laws in place. They would be living and doing exactly what they should. This is the reason that love fulfills all the law. You see, love does not take advantage of other people. Love will not use other people to fulfill their own purpose, greed, or their own lust and desire. Love will not hurt someone else any more than uh, we would want someone to hurt us. You see, love involves some very practical acts that are clearly spelled out in Scripture. Let me leave this with you today. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Charity or love suffereth long, is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. You see, love suffers long. It's patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not boast. Love is not vainglorious or prideful. Love does not have itself, uh, uh, you know, act in a manner that's indecent or unmannerly. Love does not seek its own. It's not selfish or self-seeking or self-centered. It insists to do it God's way. Love is not easily provoked. It's not touchy. It's 
not angry. It's not resentful. It's not sitting on the edge waiting for someone to push them off. Love doesn't think evil. It doesn't harbor plans of evil thoughts. It doesn't take account of the wrong that someone else has done. Love doesn't hold things over people. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. Exercising faith in everything. It's ready to believe the best in everyone. It hopes all things, keeps up hope in everything under every circumstance. It endures all things. Without weakening, it gives power to endure. Love says if what I love didn't get it right today, I bear it. I'm patient with it. I believe that tomorrow they will get it right. Romans 13, 8, and 10, 8 through 10, Oh, no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any uh, other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 15, 1 through 2. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. When we begin to understand who we are, we are then motivated by this knowledge that has not become stuck in our brain, but has matriculated to our heart because it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. It is out of the heart that you, you begin to function and, and your behavior comes. It is the very desire of your heart motivated by love because your heart is filled with the love of God that you begin to live a life that's identified with Christ that's connected to everything that Christ is. So now, I go about my day trying to love. Not trying not to sin. Or being overwhelmed when maybe I drop the ball. I know that I'm covered in the love of God. And that is not reflective of my identity. Whatever I've done, whatever mistakes I've made, they're not reflective of my identity. My identity is wrapped up in Jesus. And because I understand and know who I am, I continue living by the motivation of love, the love of God that is in me and magnified through the very things that I do. The Bible declares without faith, it is impossible to please God. For to please him, you must 
accept and know him for who he is. Believe in who he is. Now my works, they testify not of my salvation, but they testify of my faith. They testify of the very thing that I believe. So the things I do don't become my qualifier, but they become the commercial for that which has qualified me. People of God, you've got to understand, you don't have to struggle with your carnal state of being because you are not identified in your carnality after the knowledge of Christ, the acceptance and the belief of who he is has entered into your heart, mind, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus becomes the reflection of your life. And in the eyes of God, you're not seen as a sinner. You're seen as the redeemed of the Lord. What are you redeemed to? You're redeemed back to perfection. You have become the ideal righteousness of God. And now when I'm no longer worried about trying to live right. And my life is motivated by love. I can't help but to live right. Living right just becomes. A part of who I am. Let these words that I've spoken minister God's grace to you. Open the door of living in real liberty through the power of God's grace. For this is your portion. And it has been demonstrated in the love that he has for you. God bless you. Heaven smile upon you and grant to you great peace.